So I want to say hi and tell you, this is a family talk this weekend. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 26, Paul says, uh, if any part of the body hurts, the whole body suffers. And the body is suffering right now. Our nation is suffering right now. And so we're going to talk together as a family. Uh, I got a email this week I've been emailing back and forth with, among lots of other folks, uh, family in our church where one spouse is African-American and the other one Hispanic. And uh, this is part of what they wrote to me a couple days ago. Since we reached out to you, the days have weighed heavily on us. It was so painful and sad, it reminds us of the injustices we have already suffered and what we wish we could spare our son. For my husband, this is perhaps the most painful. His generation, I can see, are feeling like hope is slipping by. I'm younger than my husband and have been living with this injustice less than him, and I'm tired. But we all know we cannot give up because of the children that will come of age. We cannot give up hope. I was once told by a white pastor when I asked, how did he talk to his congregation about what happened during a similar event a few years back? I was told that the church is a nonprofit and he has to be careful not to mix politics. But yet he can turn around and talk about Christ while injustice continues? So that is why we had to do something. If Menlo Church is really what it claims, if it is really teaching to be more like Christ, we need to hear something. Less than 10 miles away from some of our campuses are children that don't have the same playing field. But I know in our church, there are many that have the means to help their kids succeed. They have the means to pay for tutors, to pay so their children can build up their resumes, to pay so their children can have a top-notch looking application, can write essays for their children for college applications, and on and on. And when a black or brown face gets some help to get to the next level, anger ensues. Yet generation after generation is always trying to catch up and against the odds. And when a person of color complains, all too often we are told we are too sensitive. We hope Menlo Christians take pause and ask themselves, how many times have I turned the other way because it doesn't affect me? How many times have I clutched my belongings when I saw a person of color in an elevator? How many times have I become anxious and on alert if a person of color drove through my neighborhood, how many times have I thought of calling the police because a person of color was sitting in their car? I could go on and on and tell you the ugly things my spouse and I have faced, but I'm confident you understand what I'm trying to say. And now we ask, what will Menlo Christians do to make a change? How will Menlo Christians use their voice for change? What will Menlo Christians do to make a local kid have a better future? What will mental Christians do to ensure that kids that look like our son can walk without fear of a police officer approaching him? What will mental Christians do? Will Menlo Christians continue to be a voice once started, even if this current event dies down? We have so much pain and sadness and could say more, but we thank you for a first step. Stay safe and God bless you. So how do we think spiritually, theologically, Christianly, uh, biblically in this moment? Well, we turn to God's Word. There was a moment of national crisis for Israel, and, and uh, there was great pain, and, and the question arose, as it does, 
What is God looking for? What does God expect? And, and in the book of the prophet Micah, the ideas are posed. Uh, you want a burnt sacrifice? And then kind of escalating. A year old calf, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil. The, f- the firstborn, you want the firstborn of my body. And then this classic statement that has been a beacon, not just for the people of Israel, but eventually a gift to all of humanity. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God. That's what we will seek to do with God's help. Now, justice is a real important word. It is a word that, unfortunately, sadly, is very often uh, used in polarized ways or politicized ways in our day to suggest an agenda that any given person might be for or against. But it's God's word. It's a real important Bible word. And I mentioned last week a great Christian thinker, Yale theologian Nicholas Walterstorff says, that uh, justice means this when it comes to humanity. One should never treat persons or human beings as if they have less worth than they do. One should never under-respect or demean them. That's biblical justice. The Old Testament prophets talked a lot about God judging societies, and they would particularly talk about widows, orphans, aliens, and the poor. Uh, You read through the Old Testament and you see those names come up over and again. Why? Because they were the most vulnerable to injustice, to being treated as having less worth than they did. Not just more vulnerable, they were disproportionately the victims of injustice. And not just that, the people who perpetrated the injustice or enabled the injustice tended to be blind to it. And so God says, do justice. And then love mercy. Mercy can't stand to sit in the sidelines. See, mercy says, man, if there's hurt, if there's pain, if there's suffering, I got to be there. I got to do something. Do justice, love mercy, and then walk humbly before your God. Now, humility uh, never gets puffed up. Humility is real open. Search me, God, know my heart. Pride is the other way around. Pride says, I don't have that problem. Pride says, Thank God that I'm not like that tax collector over there. That's always a scary posture for a person, especially a religious person to take. Humility never does. In humility, Paul says, we're to put the interests of others above ourselves. And of course, Jesus came, among other things, and created humility, a virtue that became beloved by the world. So God's will is for human beings to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before him. And this is the great narrative of humanity. God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. Every kind, every people, every tribe, every nation is of equal worth, of equal dignity, merits equal respect, equal treatment. And he intended us to live in oneness together, just as the Trinity does, Father, Son, and Spirit, and mutual servanthood, and and delight, and generosity, we're to live that way. And then the core problem, this is what we're dealing with, the core problem is sin. Now, sin 
is anti-love. Sin at its core is lovelessness. It is anti-justice. It is anti-mercy. It is anti-humility. It is not just breaking rules. It is not a matter of God having unreasonably picky high standards. Sin is a spiritual force. We see it uh, with two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain decides, as we have all done ever since then, there's something in his heart that says, I don't like him. And what God says to uh, Cain is very instructive. Uh, A writer named Daniel Hill talks about this in a book that's just about to come out called White Lies. Really, really good book. Uh, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to have you. In other words, uh, sin is a predator. It wants to have you. It is a force. It is in some way a spiritual energy. It is a living thing. It seeks to devour. And then it hides. It crouches at the door. It lurks in the shadows. It remains silently in the unseen places. Sin will try to convince you that You don't have it when, in fact, it has you. It is that way. It is a predator, and it hides. That's what we're dealing with. And now we come to racism. A lot of talk about racism. What is it exactly? Well, it is sin. It is a form of anti-love and anti-justice and anti-mercy and anti-humility. Paul says that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the rulers, against the powers of this dark world and spiritual forces in high places. And they vie with Jesus for supremacy. Colossians 1 talks about precisely precisely that same notion, powers, visible and invisible, but Jesus will ultimately have supremacy, Paul says. Now these powers vie with him for supremacy over the earth. They are ideas, they are thought systems, they are ideologies, they are symbols, they are concepts, they are language, they are images, they are spirit. They are spiritual reality. And they vie with Jesus for supremacy in his world. And this is racism. Now, racism is race-based lovelessness, anti-love, and it's one of those powers. And it's an especially pernicious one. So when we talk about this topic, we're not talking about politics, not talking about culture, not talking about ideology, not talking about sociology. Of course, it permeates all those, and and our Christian faith is to inform how we think about that stuff, but that's not my job. Those realms are not my jobs. They're not my area of expertise. I'm about the gospel, and racism goes way deeper into the gospel. It would put its It would put its roots down in the gospel. Brian Stevenson wrote Just Mercy, uh, a great voice in our day. He says that dealing with racism is like dealing with a weed. What happens if you pull up a weed, but you don't get the roots? I'm here with a few folks that are in this room to help support me and be with me in this topic, and you are all as silent as can be. So I'll ask one more time, what happens to a weed if you don't pull it up by the root? It comes back. And that's what we're dealing with here. That's why we got to get to the root. 
there was a, a wonderful uh, op-ed piece in the Washington Post this week by Condoleezza Rice. And Condoleezza Rice says that racism is, uh, to use her metaphor, the birth defect of our country. When America was born, Europeans and Africans came to this continent, but only one of them came in chains. And now this raises a real important question. Uh, a lot of these people who came to Christian were, uh, came to America were Christians. And they read the Bible and they loved God. So how could they own black people as slaves? How was it possible for people who genuinely and sincerely sought to love God, obey God, pray, read the scriptures, be good parents, how was it possible that they could knowingly own and buy and sell and trade people with black skins? Well, there's only one way, see, and that way is there had to arise a narrative, a narrative that was at odds with, was the enemy of God's story, that all people were made equally in his image to be dealt with with justice and mercy and humility. And this other narrative said that these people with darker skins, black skins, do not bear the image of God the way that people with white skins do. That black people are less worthy, are less valuable, are less intelligent, are less competent, are less beautiful, are less refined, are less functional, that white people are somehow more godlike and black people are somehow more animal-like and therefore hierarchical systems are okay. Okay? Now this is not a superficial problem. We hear the phrase white supremacy, and often we'll just think about, you know, clans and robes or Nazis or skinheads or, or swastikas or stuff like that. No, it's, it's this voice that whispers to me, my people, my norms, my tastes, my values, my way, my appearance somehow bears the image of God more fully than theirs does. This is a lie from the pit of hell. And I mean that quite literally. And it mocks Jesus. And it savages, it mangles his church, his bride. And it gets into everything, see. We're getting to the root now. It's not about custom, it's not about habit, it's not about politics. Although it informs all of those, and it must, it gets into our minds, it gets into our thoughts, it gets into our cells, it gets into our eyes and our perception and how we look, it gets into our mouths and the words that just come out of us without ever even thinking, and it gets into our educational systems, and it gets into our housing practices, and it gets into our laws, and it gets into our churches. Years ago, we came home one time into our house, and we couldn't stand the smell, and, and uh, it was unbearable. We had no idea what it was, but it was just intolerable. We called the fire department and the gas station, and they both sent people out immediately. Skunks, a family of skunks, had gotten into the crawl space and then into our house. And uh, neither the fire department or the gas station would get rid of them, but there was a skunk in the house. And you never smelled anything like that. And, and when the skunk did what skunks did, it got into everything. It got into the carpets. It got into the furniture. It got into the cushions. It got into the closets. It got into the clothes. It got into every room. That's what a skunk does. 
And, and sin is that way. This issue of racism is that way. It just gets into everything. I love law enforcement. You all know about that. I have a nephew that I love. He would come and stay with us as he was, uh, uh, I had weekends off when he was studying to become a law enforcement officer at Sacramento. I love him so much. We've been talking through this process. So painful for him. Watching injustice is so painful for him. And it gets into law enforcement. It gets into churches. I love pastors. It gets, in, it gets into everything. I'll tell you how deeply it does. The most famous experiments in social science in the 30s and 40s, a couple named Clark, psychologists, did what was called the doll study. And they had little children, white children and African-American children, look at little dolls, little white doll with yellow hair, a little brown-skinned doll with black hair, and ask, which doll do you think is ugly? Which doll would you want to play with? And, and little white children and little African-American children disproportionately would point to the white doll and lest you think that was only in the 30s and 40s, that study was uh, replicated by another social scientist by the name of Spencer in, uh, I think it was 2010, not long ago. Little images of little children, uh, five of them, from uh, quite light to quite dark. And they would ask children, some four or five years old, little white children and little black children, which one is dumb? Which one is ugly? And the skunk is still in the house. Little four-year-old kids, it is so painful to watch. Little white child say, that one is ugly. Why? Because they're black. Or to watch a little black girl, uh, which image has skin color that people, that adults like, point to the white child. It gets into everything, see? This is the root and uh, it's beyond human capacity. It doesn't mean that we don't act. We gotta. But people will say, you know, we just need to change people's hearts. No, it gets into systems. It gets into structures. Other people will say, we just have to change systems. No, it gets into people's hearts. It gets into mind. It is real. It is spiritual. It is diabolical. And Jesus won't have it. See? He won't have it. And I believe that what happened at George Floyd's death is we saw it. Usually it stays hidden. Sin is crouching at the door. But in that video that didn't want to be taken, this evil, hellish, spiritual, demonic force showed its face. And we were sickened. We were horrified. Because sin loves darkness. That's why Will Smith said, racism isn't getting worse. It's getting filmed. Evil loves the darkness. It hates the light. Thank God for the light. That's why, gang, I believe this is a moment of opportunity for us. This is a moment, more than I can remember for a long, long time, when people across all kinds of different divides, people of uh, different politics, different ethnicities, different generations, different ages, different, however you want to slice up demographics. People are coming together. Look at that tape. Hear those words. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And, and thinking about a string of names, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. 
and, 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 and just all kinds of people saying, this cannot stand. You know, uh, one of the reasons why it is so important that the violence or the shooting that will horrify any of us when we look at it has to stop is not only does it hurt the victims, and it does, but it can cause our nation to miss this moment that we cannot miss. Because there are moments. Uh, there was a moment, a moment came when slavery was ended. There was a moment came when a woman named Rosa Parks said, no, I'm not going to give up my seat on a bus. And the world changed. I got to meet her years ago, uh, not long after I first came out to California. And I'll tell you, she was such a little frail thing that to think a no that big came out of a woman that small is amazing. And she's a very devoted follower of Jesus, Sunday school teacher. So I think this moment begins when evil shows its face and then we say no. No. No more. Do justice, love mercy. We live, we live in a society and country where a little baby gets born. And if it's a little black baby, it is twice as likely to die in childbirth as if it's got white skin. No. No more. We live in a society where when a little baby is born, if its skin is dark, it is less likely to graduate from high school. It is less likely to go on to college. It is more likely to end up in prison. It is more likely to suffer from COVID. It is less likely to get a good job. It's likely to live poorer and die sooner than if it was born with white skin due to no issue, nothing with that little child. No. I went back to uh, a meeting after the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church a few years ago, and uh, it was a group of us that were church leaders, some black, some white. Every African-American person in the room, when they were telling their story, eventually they would talk about the first time they had to confront the N-word. Every one of them. I've never had to confront a word that describes my skin like that. When our son Johnny was born, as he was growing up, I never had to have a talk with him where I would set him aside and say, uh, now son, here's what you must do when you will get pulled over. I've never had to think, maybe if I move into a neighborhood, the property values might drop. People might not be crazy about that. In our society, the top 10%, you know, we value education for our kids so much, the top 10% of school districts spend 10 times more money per student than the bottom 10% of school districts. No! So, you know, this is a long journey, been going on a long time, but, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We've got to deal with the roots. I know there are some people who will say, prayer's a cop-out. You know, prayer is just an excuse to not take action. Prayer is irrelevant. No, no. Prayer is not all that we are to do, not by a long shot, but prayer is what we are all called to do. 
See, it is Jesus who is the reconciler. The ministry of reconciliation belongs to him, and we get to become a part of that when we become reconciled with him through the blood that was shed on his cross. And if we think we can go into battle on this one apart from him, we're dealing with a force way beyond us. So you pray. Pray individually. Pray as a life group. Pray for our government leaders. Pray for protests and marches. Pray for uh, leaders in the African-American community and church. Pray that God will be at work in our nation. We will learn. Uh, we'll study together. A year ago, I went with uh, uh, five friends who we always uh, spend the better part of a week together. And uh, last, last spring, we went to Montgomery, Alabama. We stood on the corner where you can stand on one corner in Montgomery and you look over at the market where human beings were sold as slaves for the very first time. And then you look at another corner from there and you see where Rosa Parks got on the bus the day that she said no. And then you look at another building and you see the place where the directive went out from the initial Confederacy government that began the Civil War. And then you look down that street towards the Capitol building and you see the church where a young pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. Began. We, we saw all that from that one spot. And we went to the Legacy Museum, charts the history from slavery to our day. And our, gu our guide, African-American man, told us about how when uh, the court said that segregation in schools had to stop. And so the school district, when they found out that their nicest, newest, best school would be forced to integrate, sold it to a group of white citizens so that it could become a private, segregated school. The public school district sold that school for one dollar. Well, we'll learn. We will humble ourselves. I will do that. I know. I have so many blind spots. I know I'm inadequate to do this talk. I know that. But I got to say something. I got to do something. You got to, we got to. Uh, it'll be messy. We will make lots of mistakes. I know that. I'm asking everybody, be patient. Don't run from this. Don't leave this conversation. Let's go in it together as followers of Jesus Christ. Our church is uh, uh, about 60% uh, Anglo, around 30% Asian, and then a smattering of other uh, ethnicities. And so, and we know we have a long way to go. <laughs> we follow Jesus who made us all, uh, in whom we are all one. I mean, the church began a revolution in human community. That's part of us. So you do that. You become a prayer. You become a learner. You humble yourself. You, you embrace the messiness of it. You have conversations. Go to the website. We're involved in ministry partners. And uh, if you want to make a difference, uh, you can find out about uh, a, a number of them to get involved with. I had a conversation with uh, Ephraim Smith. Ephraim is a friend. He's a uh, uh, pastor, African-American church leader, very involved in lots of these conversations. And uh, there's a whole hour-long conversation that you can take a look at. But we wanted you to see just a brief snippet of that conversation for a couple of minutes where Ephraim talks about next steps that you and I can take. So take a look at this right now. Another text that I really lean on to get more specific in this is 2 Corinthians 5. Mm. And, and this call 
between verses 14 and 21 to um, take on the message and the ministry of reconciliation. So um, Jesus' followers need to see that racial reconciliation is a ministry. Uh, right now, racial to, to experience racial reconciliation, it feels so political. It feels yeah. it feels like, oh, so the only way I can be a part of racial reconciliation is I have to jump political parties or I have to stop watching this cable news station or I have to stop reading this. I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't I don't know. But that's not what's at the core. The 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 reconciliation is a is a ministry it's a it's a calling and you have to take where you are how god has gifted you and wired you and find your place uh on the road to racial reconciliation sometimes the ministry of reconciliation and advancing the kingdom is just playing a a role in closing the racial gaps, the disparities that exist in just one particular area. So I'll give you one example um, is, is I, I talk to a lot of churches that say, well, where do we even begin to get on the road to racial reconciliation of advancing the kingdom in the area of race? Well, I go, here's one. Uh, there's data that's been presented that shows that if urban, uh, black and brown, public school kids between the, the grades of third grade and fifth grade, if they're at grade level in math and reading, they are very likely to go to college. But if they're below grade level between the third and fifth grade in math and reading, they are very likely to be incarcerated. So I believe that at the majority of churches in America, the adults can read at the third grade level. The adults can do math at the third grade level. So if you go to the nearest under-resourced public elementary school and you start a tutoring program or you start a summer academy and you just make sure that kids are at grade level uh, in, 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 in math and reading, uh, you are dismantling the pipeline to prison. You wow. are opening the gateway to college. You are empowering those that um, have historically been the marginalized and the outcast and are behind because uh, outside of spiritual transformation through mm. Jesus, education is a tremendous key mm. that unlocks the door to empowerment. I mean, I would go, if I had an order of empowerment, I would say, Jesus, <laughs> education, oh. wealth creation, you know, yes. so, so, you know, wealth, so, you know, Jesus, you know, education, wealth creation, that closes gaps. And so getting kids to, to grade level in math and reading by the third grade is going to get get us down that that road. And so that is a nonpartisan, yeah. that, you know what I mean, that uh, should be low-hanging fruit, simple way. So you want to learn more, just get fired up in your heart, uh, get a dose of Jesus uh, uh, tune into that and hear more of what Ephraim has to say. And we're going to do this together. We are going to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before our God.
Let's pray. God, thank you for the plan that you had when you created human beings. And we long, we ache, uh, we grieve, we plead that you would use us, help us, bring healing, bring hope. And we pray this in the name of your magnificent Son who died on a cross to reconcile all things to himself so that he might have supremacy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.